Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Stefan Aust and Adrian Geigers, authors of the new book, Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World. Uh, Stefan, Adrian, welcome both to Bookstack. Yeah, hello. Thank you for having us. And congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, so, Stefan, why is China's leader the most powerful man in the world? Tell me who else should it be, but don't tell Biden. I mean, you have a country now... Uh, with the biggest population in the world, 1.4 billion, uh, which is not as poor as it used to be in, in, in the times before. And you have a one-party system and you have a, one president there and one uh, head of the, the military and the head of the party. Uh, and um, he will even probably change the law that in China um uh, the the head of state is only allowed to be for one for two terms the head of the state so he will change it and i cannot imagine that any other country in the world there is which is so strong so big and has such a powerful person on on its top I mean, it is interesting, Stefan, that that power, I suppose, is defined in in different ways. I mean, the the difference between the Chinese president and the American president is that perhaps that almost everyone around the world would recognise the American president. Not so many people, I think, would be able to pick the Chinese president out of a, a picture parade. Uh, I, is is that one of the the reasons behind the writing of the book? Actually, that's the main reason for writing this book. <clears throat> Just seeing how China has been growing and how China changed and how big the power, the economic power, and in fact, the military power as well is now. And we always, you know, after the, the collapse of the Soviet system, we always thought and, and could read everywhere uh, the, the last... World power is the United States of America, which certainly is still true when you see the military power and everything. But China is getting very, very close. And we have to see this uh, as a big change in the world. Uh, Adrian, I, I guess it is one of the the interesting facts, isn't it? That, that there have been some people who've said that on GDP, the, the projections perhaps question whether China will in fact overtake the United States now. Um, where, where do you stand on that, I wonder? I mean, it is not a question of whether, but uh, only a question of when China uh, will overtake, overtake the United States. And this makes the situation very different from the situation we had in the Cold War. In the Cold War, we had the Soviet Union, which was a strong military power, but economically very weak. Like, by the way, also Russia nowadays is uh, economically not very strong. So, but now we have the first time in... Um, recent history, we have an economically powerful country under leadership of Xi Jinping, which opposes our values of freedom, 
of democracy and so on. And this in a situation when, on the other hand, the United States uh, are divided internally like never before. While Xi Jinping is ruling in his own country with nearly absolute power. I mean, it, it is interesting. You say quite early on in the book, Adrian, that that China has emerged from COVID nineteen stronger than the United States. But again, it it seems there's been quite a lot of commentary from those who've argued that COVID nineteen revealed the limitations of the Chinese state. Even the response, the the vaccine, it wasn't China that came up with a with the vaccine. It it was the United States and Europe. So you know, is that is that diversity that uh, say the United States and uh, various European countries like Germany, where you're uh, speaking from, uh, is is that is that an advantage over the, the the Chinese state? Their general point of view is that that they have a no COVID strategy, but this obviously does not function. But on on the other hand, the system is so strong that it can pe force people to stay at home or to close. Uh, whole cities or parts of cities, which is much um, much more than in in Western democracies, uh, the the governments can do. Although sometimes they try to do the same, um, and you know what you what you said is that we invented you know the the vaccination, uh, but uh, I'm not that sure whether that really functioned as well as we think or as well as we thought. Uh, <clears throat> so in the end. Um, you don't really know who gets uh, out of that um, pandemic um, uh, easier. We or them. And I think a dictatorship has always a possibility to use this to get the people, you know, on straight line. I, d I suppose, that Stefan, I mean, it is one of those interesting questions, isn't it? And you draw this out in the book that, that Xi's version of China uh, and particularly the uh, the economy is very different to uh, Deng's model for China, which, which seemed to have much more of that kind of diversity uh, of thought and activity and entrepreneurism and so on. That uh, I just wonder whether COVID is a good illustration that the centralization may actually be something that will strangle the kind of innovation um, that has really brought on the Chinese economy over the last few decades. I think this is a big problem and will be a big problem for China. <clears throat> but, you know, we don't didn't try to look too much into the future, but, but <laughs> in, into uh, the what's really happening there and what has been uh, uh, developing in China up to the very moment. Uh, the 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 main difference between uh, Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping is that she opened the country, and I think the success of China in world economy um, was because they opened the borders because people could go out, go studying somewhere, coming back, uh, starting businesses. So they opened the country, uh, but you can see now that Xi Jinping is in a certain way uh, trying to close it, to close the borders again, to, to build a new Chinese wall. And um, I don't know which reason he has for that. Maybe he is completely wrong with his strategy. Or, Adrian? I mean, uh, 
we sometimes say in the discussion about the book, the only person who can be dangerous to Xi Jinping is Xi Jinping himself. And that's uh, because, uh, I mean, he, he actually profit from what Deng Xiaoping did, that uh, he opened the country and it developed very fast. And now it's a strong economic power and uh, uh, Xi Jinping is using it. And uh, his idea is a threat that the openness can destroy the power of the Communist Party because he is afraid the same things might happen like in the Soviet Union, that the system breaks down as, as soon as there is some open and free discussion. So he's... Uh, limiting uh, the freedom inside of the country. For example, uh, some years ago when I lived in China, there had been much more open uh, discussions in the Chinese internet. Uh, there had been censorship also then, but still there had been some uh, new ideas uh, in the social field. And he is trying to uh, limit this very much. And he used uh, COVID as an excuse to... Uh, close off uh, China from the outside world. But we have to see that he himself can change this anytime. He can use the upcoming party congress to declare victory over COVID and uh, change the uh, politics 100%. And uh, uh, unlike from a Western democratic country where the people would ask, yeah, but you told us yesterday quite the opposite. The people won't uh, find anything anymore, which he told yesterday, because he controls uh, what is published in the television, in the internet, and so on and so on. So he has this absolute power. Whether this in the long term will hurt him and will hurt China, that's another question. For now, he has this absolute power. Uh, Stefan, we said right at the very beginning that uh, in the West, we don't really know very much uh, about President Xi. T tell us a bit about his background, where he comes from, and how he managed to rise uh, so high to the very top of, of Chinese politics. Well, actually, that is that is very interesting, especially, especially for me, because I'm I'm not the China expert. I have been there quite often and and we wrote together another book but the the real expert is um adrian but when we started to write this book we were surprised how little is known about the life of xi jinping his family his career the way he came into the power the way he uses his power uh, about his family it is is very very little is known about that and so it was very good that that uh, Adrian, who speaks um, fluently uh, uh, Chinese, and and so he could get get into all the original um, uh, written things from the party and and interviews uh, that are not known in the West. And actually, there is no book about Xi Jinping before. But actually, if if we want to go a little bit into the details of his life and his career, uh, I think Adrian is better to do that. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, he is, uh, was born into the family of one of the high leaders uh, of China after the revolution, uh, Xi Zhongxin. His father was together with uh, Mao Zedong in the Long March. 
and uh, which was like the, the founding uh, event for for this for the Chinese Revolution. Most of the fighters died, but he was among the survivors, and so he uh, became uh, after the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. Uh, Xi Jinping, the father, became uh, one of the high leaders and became the vice premier of China. But then he um, he fell into disgrace, uh, um, was under house arrest, was tortured, uh, came into prison, and also uh, uh, Xi Jinping himself was a victim of the Cultural Revolution. One should think that uh, somebody who suffers something like this, whose family suffers something like this, Uh, became a dissident, uh, a critic of the communist system, or at least somebody who is fed up with politics and goes into business uh, or something else instead. But um, Xi Jinping, uh, he uh, chose another path because he decided he does not want to suffer the same um, destiny, the same fate like his father. So he decided to become rather than red, and he made Mao to his idol. He wanted to become like Mao. He didn't want to become a victim of uh, the power. He wanted to have the power himself. And uh, so he decided to go a long march, so to say, uh, through the uh, party. And in spite of he all already was the child of a high leader, he uh, decided to go the long way to become the party boss in a village and, and then in a town and then a vice mayor and uh, then in a prefecture and then in a province. And so he made his uh, long way through the party up to the top. And uh, we found for our book a lot of details about his life in that time, why nobody knew uh, Xi Jinping then, but everybody knew his wife, who is Peng Lian, a famous singer in uh, China. She's as famous in China as uh, Beyonce in the United States. And uh, so there was a kind of interest in the Chinese media, like the local press and so on, or the, the cultural magazines, uh, because of his wife, because of Peng Lian. So they're also asking, who is the husband? And that's uh, why it was possible to find a lot of interesting details about the life story of Xi Jinping. Yeah, and it's it's I mean that that cultural aspect is fascinating, or the kind of celebrity side. The other thing that I found fascinating in the book is how he really makes his name and consolidates his position, uh, at least initially, with this fight against corruption, uh, Stefan, which which seems to be something incredibly important in his rise. Actually, I think he is a very smart guy uh, in looking at his position and his chances. Um, I think uh, he, through all his youth and the young time, he had one thing in mind, the system, how it worked, how it, how it ran. And one of, one of the main reasons for his career was that his, that his family was so well known. It's always a group of people to help each other to go um, uh, to the top. It's not only one person who is smarter than other people are. It's, it's a whole system. But at the same time, 
when you have when you have people who grow up with together with you who become important who 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 become who get more power more and more power you have to see that these are not getting stronger than you are and in a system like that it's a little bit um um, I, I wouldn't say, well, a little bit uh, a mixture out of a big company and the mafia. Uh, so when you have to want to get rid of people, you have to find a system how you can uh, let them let them be dropped out or dropped into prisons or whatsoever. So in a, in, in a system in China, which is uh, generally not without corruption, uh, the easiest way to get rid of people is to tell uh, that they are corrupt and they, and put them on trial. So and and most of the time when people were put on trial, they were convicted. I think there was not one case, or Adrian was the one case when somebody was let out of prison again. So I think he he knows the system how to work with people and how to how to get help by people and how to help people to get out of power as, at the same time. And, you know, I guess, Adrian, that, I mean, it's one of those elements, isn't it? It's not unfamiliar to us uh, historically, but but there does seem a, a certain irony that uh, much of his early career, at least seen from the outside, is about trying to uh, introduce greater transparency and openness and a lack of corruption uh, within the system, but that as he's consolidated his power, we've got this deeply sinister Orwellian aspect uh, to the regime, not least uh, the surveillance state uh, seen at its darkest uh, in the treatment of the Uyghurs. You are right. Uh, but even like in the beginning, when he was uh, like a, a provincial party secretary, he uh, never had the idea of like a Western style of uh, transparency or democracy. It was always uh, the idea, the strong communist party uh, who has to punish like the the, the the bad apples inside of the party and has to be like uh, the party of the people. Uh, but then, uh, as you said, I mean, uh, when, when he got the power, he could use this anti-corruption movement very well to have two things on the same time. On the one hand, he could uh, use uh, the uh, point, uh, you are corrupt against all rivals or even against all potential rivals or even uh, put uh, uh, have uh, all party leaders afraid that if they criticize Xi Jinping, they can be accused of corruption. I mean, the Chinese say uh, to, um, to frighten the monkey, you have to kill the chicken. So this he used very effective. And on the other hand, this uh, anti-corruption campaign helped him to become very popular among the Chinese people because uh, they said, oh, finally, we have here a strong man who is fighting the elite, who is fighting the corrupt officials and who is the man of the people. And and, and Stefan, you know, I, I wonder if we if we look abroad, uh, what about the relationship uh, with the United States? There's been a trade war. Graham Allison in the Thucydides trap says that there will almost inevitably be an actual war. Uh, I wonder what conclusions did you come to about the relationship of China with the West and specifically uh, the United States? One of the, the, the main reasons for this development of China 
is Nixon going to China and opening the borders? So getting China into the global economic system, first as the workbench of the world, that helped them a lot to get out of poverty. And so uh, at the same time, you have to see that this is not only a big country with a lot of, lot of people, but they are very smart and people who like to work, who want to make a career, to make a career by themselves, but for the country um, altogether. So at the same time, this helped uh, the Western countries a lot. It, it helped the United States to sell their things or to buy their things. Uh, it helped the Germans to sell their cars and to, to buy a lot of things. So it's, it's part of the world economic system which is more successful than it has ever been. But then there is a moment when different sides look at this uh, situation and, and uh, uh, come to different um, conclusions. So one of the United States is not to become de so de dependent on China anymore. Uh, in Germany, we didn't think about that yet because if, if you wouldn't sell our cars there, you won't, we won't uh, sell um, less than 50%. Um, so, and the Chinese, on the other hand, don't want to be the working bench uh, of the world anymore. So they concentrate on their own interior economic uh, development. So uh, that's, that's a way that has been changing um, the the. Uh, the relationship between China and the Western countries. And at the same time, now we have the conflict uh, with, with, with Russia uh, and China needs one thing as uh, much as we do need it. This is energy. And so what you can see is that China and Russia are getting closer together, um, which then is a rather big, threat to the Western um, societies and for the economy and, and, and the power as well. It is, Adrian, one of the fascinating elements of the book, surprising elements in many ways of the book, that uh, usually, I mean, this is a point, for example, that Francis Fukuyama makes, that uh, however successful China is, nobody really sees it as a rival system that they want to emulate or embrace uh, as, as, an, as, a, as a different system to liberal democracy. Uh, but but you, at one point in the book, you say that China has achieved its great power status by means of a system of government that no one ever thought could be as productive as capitalist liberal democracy. What lifted China to the top was a one-party state that combines communism with Confucianism. I mean, it, it, it sounds to me as if you not only think that China as a great power is a rival to the United States, you actually think perhaps that this, this model of governance is actually a rival to liberal democracy too. That's, that's quite an unusual position to take. That doesn't mean that we um, support that idea, you know. But the the interesting thing is, you know, when yeah, when when I, you know, when I when I look back in in my own past into the history which I was working as a journalist, when you we always were sure that communism does not work economically. You just had to go to West Berlin and you, you look around uh, over the wall and you see that the communist system just does not work. 
So we were all convinced all the time that a communist system, a one-party system, cannot work. Uh, we always thought that uh, that capitalism and democracy were one one thing. Uh, but we, you can, if you look at China, you can see that you can have a dictatorship, a one-party system, which is economically very, very successful, and that has. And, and I think we have to think about that, not to imitate that, but to find out what mainly is the problem, why we are getting um, not as successful as we used to be, and, and why uh, a system like that can build an airport earlier and, and sooner than we can do it, especially in Germany. And... There's a lot of things happen although and function, although they don't have a market system uh, in, uh, in combination with, with a democracy. And I think we have to think why our, where our faults are. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I, I mean, Richard, uh, Bill Clinton uh, once said, uh, it's the economy stupid. I mean, he said it in the, uh, internal American context, but this is, of course, uh, true also in an international context. Uh, the Most people are not uh, political uh, activists or don't support this or that because of ideological reasons. The most people look what works better for themselves. And uh, in this sense, uh, the, the Chinese system is a strong competitor. I mean, in the research for this book, we also had been in Africa and uh, people there told us, I mean, uh, the Western countries, you come with some aid or with a gender project or something, but the Chinese, they help us to build the airports, the streets, the factories and so on and so on. So we are really in a competition here and should show that a free world works better than uh, than a dictatorship. Uh, this was, uh, uh, as Stefan said, this was very clear during the Cold War. Everybody knew that uh, East Germany was uh, functioning uh, worse than West Germany and that Soviet Union was functioning um, much worse than the United States. But nowadays, this comparison is not so clear as it was in that time. And, you know, I guess, uh, Stefan, that, I mean, that's why there has been a, a much more muscular policy developed by the West. You think about uh, the trade war that we were talking about earlier, the way in which uh, various governments have pushed back against Huawei and the 5G technology, um, particularly uh, led uh, by uh, Australia, the United States and Britain in the new security alliance uh, between those three countries, that there, there seems to be a collective uh, recognition, perhaps actually informed by the experience of the war in Ukraine and, and how Vladimir Putin has been able to uh, manipulate energy supplies and, and so on, that the, the West has to be, uh, if not necessarily more aggressive, then certainly push back uh, and more assertive uh, in terms of its own values, its, its interests, both democratic and economic. Well, I, I think what we what we should learn out of the out of the war in Ukraine, um, and you you never know how long it will last, and and maybe it escalates. Um, I think uh, we we thought that 
the combination of economy, economies of different countries, uh, selling things, buying things, buying gas, uh, delivering machines for this, uh, that, that helps us to get into a peaceful world. Right now, we can see that the first what dies when there is a war coming up is the economic relationship, as you can see uh, with Russia. Um, uh, so the, the only thing may be, which, is, which could be good out of this war in the Ukraine is that maybe uh, uh, China sees that a conflict, that a military conflict um, is um, at first step stopping all the economic relations between the different countries. If you can, because of sanctions or because of, of, of other things. So I hope that the, the big plan he has to get, let's say, Taiwan back into uh, China, <clears throat> that he will think about that because he, he after the, the Ukraine experience now, at least he can see that when the war really starts, you will have an economic war, which is at least as big and as, as terrible for all countries that are uh, part of that conflict. So the book is Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World. It's written by my guests, uh, Stefan Aust and Adrian Geigers, and published by Polity. Uh, but for now, Stefan, Adrian, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be with you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>